Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 186, recorded Thursday, April 21st, 2022. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, mask mandate scramble and small airport survival. So coming to you from the Travel Commons studios in Chicago, Illinois, riding the roller coaster of Midwest temperatures, 70 degrees one day, 45 degrees the next. We were in Santa Fe, New Mexico about a week and a half ago with a group of friends. And I got to tell you there, uh, you know, the Midwest has nothing on high desert plateau temperature swings. So whereas in the Midwest, maybe it's from day to day. In Santa Fe, it's within the day. We'd wake up at, you know, I don't know, 35, 40 degrees, bundle up, and then we'd be stripping layers off at lunch when it hit the upper 60s, maybe 70. We had great weather. Maybe one day where it was windy, overcast, and cold all day. The rest of the time was sunny and clear blue skies. You know, some bits of our visit were kind of a replay of our Thanksgiving 2018 trip to Santa Fe. I talked about that trip in episode 147 and then wrote it up in much more detail in the Lowbrow Santa Fe blog post, which that blog post actually came in pretty handy, reminded me of restaurants, tap rooms, things to do while we were doing, I don't know, some of the bare minimum planning that you need to do just to get a 10-person group pointed in the same direction at the same time. And even if some of it was a replay for us, it was the first time for our friends. And seeing these places again through their eyes gave it all a new spin for us. Actually, I was happy to see that not a lot had changed in the intervening three and a half years, that COVID hadn't driven any of our favorite places out of business. The only things I saw closed up were a pre-security restaurant at Albuquerque Airport and then Tent Rocks National Monument, which we really liked back in 2018. But the Bureau of Land Management closed it during the COVID lockdowns and now are keeping it closed to upgrade the trails. So that was about it. Everything else, we stayed at the El Ferrolito Bed and Breakfast again. Again, there were 10 of us, so we kind of took it over. Uh, The owner told us Santa Fe was as busy as ever, and we saw Our flight down to Albuquerque was completely full, as were all the restaurants. But still, we managed to wedge our way into a number of places on Santa Fe's Margarita Trail. Yes, I know it's a pure marketing thing, but we were square in their target market and more than happy enough to get tagged. We had high-end premium tequila margaritas, lowbrow house margaritas, green chili infused margaritas, all kinds of margaritas, except except those made with sour mix. I had to draw the line somewhere. A lot of places were saying theirs was the best margarita. This is the world's greatest margarita. So we had to try as many as we could. But as as one of our crew so just so aptly put it, the world's best margarita is the one in your hand. So following up, one more note about the place we stayed in Santa Fe, the El Ferrolito. Full housekeeping every day in our casita without asking, and that even included restocking the Kiva fireplace with fresh wood and crumpled up newspaper. So all we had to do was strike the match, throw it in, and woof, the fire went off. 
Also, you get a full-cooked breakfast. Now, the only lingering COVID service restrictions, no afternoon cookies. But given the amount of food and margaritas we were consuming, I actually think that that was actually a good thing. Before the flight down to Albuquerque, Travel Commons contributor Alan Marco pointed me to Flighty, a flight tracker app. I've talked about flight tracking apps in past episodes. Years back, I paid the 50 bucks a year for TripIt Pro, but eventually dropped it as airlines kept upgrading their own apps, improving real-time status notifications, adding where's my plane functionality. Add in the free FlightAware app, and look, that's been my flight tracker tech stack for, I don't know, the past number of years. But looking at app reviews, Flighty seems to be, I don't know, the latest hotness, so I downloaded it to give it a go. It's a nice-looking app, and they're smart to give a free trial for all the paid features on your first flight. So I first synced it with TripIt, so I didn't need to re-enter my Albuquerque flights. Then that day, the day we were departing, I got flight notifications faster, and the, fl- and the information on it was more granular than what Southwest was sending me. I scrolled down for a nice timeline of where's my plane. Always important for Southwest flights since they tend to bunny hop across the country during the day rather than run out and back to hubs. There's also a detailed flight timeline, pushback, taxi, takeoff, landing. I mean, nothing that I couldn't get from FlightAware, but Flighty's UI was so much better, more modern, and it had everything I needed all on one screen. But, of course, all this information that I was liking is part of their pro or their paid offering. And it was all blurred out for our next flight, the flight back to Midway, which is when I really could have used it because I woke up to a one-hour flight delay notification from Southwest. I mean, the only thing I got from Flighty was an upsell notification saying, looks like your flight's delayed. You should upgrade to Pro for more information. Not the most helpful, especially after, I don't know, there was some bug in their system. And so they kept sending me that same notification, uh, maybe every three to five minutes until I finally was able to spelunk far enough into my iPhone's notification settings to shut it off. And then after that, I opened FlightAware to figure out what was really going on. Our flight was late getting out of BWI, which was its first hop of the day. And we were another couple of hops further down the line. So net-net, The Flighty Pro offering is really nice. I liked it. I mean, if I was back to flying every week, I'd pay the 50 bucks to have all that information on a single screen. But Flighty Free, it's not going to make it into my tech stack. It just can't replace the free, the familiar, if slightly clunkier, flight aware. You know, I've been noticing a bunch of new deals, another wave of new deals, uh, offering a free year of Clear, that biometrically powered security line cut service that lists out at $179 a year. Now, I've always been ambivalent about Clear. I talked about this last fall in episode 179 when I received the first raft of free year offers. Uh, Those are from American and United. The time savings over regular TSA pre-check has never seemed enough. It's never been compelling enough to justify the cost of letting Clear hold my biometric information, especially since the first incarnation of Clear had to be sued to stop it from selling customers' fingerprint and iris scan data before it went bankrupt. 
Having said that, I'm seeing clear at more airports. And I got to tell you, if, if the TSA hiring can't keep up with passenger volume growth and those pre-checked lines start to lengthen, it might be enough to get me opening my eyes wide to those clear machines again. And hey, if you have any stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to M. Peacock. Post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram accounts at Travel Commons. Or you can always post your comments on the website at travelcommons.com. The first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is mask mandate scramble. We talked in the last episode about the CDC kicking the can containing in-flight mask mandates down the road a month from March 18th to this past Monday, April 18th. And so last week, anticipation began to build in travel circles about what the CDC would do. On her flight home from Albuquerque, the Southwest flight attendant said during her pre-takeoff announcements, hopefully the in-flight mask mandate ends next week. But until then, and then she ran through the standard mask instructions. I wasn't surprised since, as we mentioned in the last episode, their union has been asking for the mandate to end. However, I was a little surprised that the instruction announcement included, if your oxygen masks fall during the flight, please take your current masks off before putting the oxygen mask on. I mean, that would seem a bit obvious to me, but maybe I think about these things more than the average passenger. Anyhow, the next day, I, after finishing my interview with Joanne Magley of Daytona Beach International Airport, which you're going to hear in the next segment... Joanne and I got talking about the mask mandate. What's going to happen on Monday? Joanne's cut. Look, I don't know, but I hope we know something by Sunday so we're prepared for Monday, which is what happened. The next day, word began to leak out that the CDC was going to extend the mandate again for two weeks this time. You know, it was almost two years ago in 2020, soon after the lockdowns and the travel ban started and passenger volumes just cratered. The airlines themselves started requiring in-flight masks in an attempt to coax people back into what were seen as really modern-day plague ships. In episode 165, I talked about my first post-lockdown flight that June, June 2020, saying back then it felt like mask usage was about 80%. I see kids ripping their mask off as soon as they get off the jetway. A sizable minority of mask wearers were just covering their mouths, leaving their noses uncovered. Pilots, cleaning crews, passengers, wheelchair people. Those are my observations back in uh, June. But it wasn't until Joe Biden's inauguration day, January 2021, that the in-flight mask mandate became a federal mandate. That initial mandate was through mid-May, so for five months. But a few weeks before it expired, it extended for four months to mid-September, and then another four months to mid-January 2022, then two months to mid-March, then one month to mid-April, and then now a half month, two weeks, to May. And with indoor mask mandates dropping everywhere else, each of these last extensions, which is for most places the last remaining mask mandate, they just generated more and more pushback. So when the federal judge struck down the mask mandate this past Monday, the speed at which everyone ditched their mask rules was just amazing. 
Within hours of the ruling, the TSA and all the major U.S. airlines announced they were no longer requiring masks. There were reports of flight attendants announcing the decision in flight to cheers and then walking down the aisle with trash bags to collect unwanted and now seemingly unneeded face masks. On Tuesday morning, I got emails from Uber and Lyft dropping their mask mandates. Tuesday afternoon, Illinois' governor dropped the state's masking requirements on all regional trains buses, uh, Chicago transport, and Chicago's airports. The rush of announcements, it was almost like everybody was working to make it sort of a fait accompli, a done deal that couldn't be reversed. Because amidst all this activity was an undertone, this unknown, would the Biden administration and the CDC appeal the judge's ruling? Nothing on Monday, nothing on Tuesday. But then toward the end of the day yesterday, Wednesday afternoon, the CDC asked the Department of Justice to file an appeal, which it did, but without a request to stay the judge's ruling, you know, asking to reinstate the mandate. At least as of midday today, Thursday, they hadn't done that. I I can't figure out what their plan is or if there is one, really. As I said in the last episode, even without a mask mandate, I'll probably ride the pragmatic middle. On half full planes, probably skipping the mask, though I'll still turn on the air jet full blast. But I'll still pull out a KN95 mask when somebody's in the middle seat sitting next to me shoulder to shoulder like our full flight uh, to Albuquerque last week. I really didn't mind wearing a mask for that three and a half hours. And it's it, look, it's not just a COVID thing. I've, I haven't had a bad cold since all this started. You know what? I'd kind of like to keep it that way. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is small airport survival. American Airlines made news a couple of weeks back when they, in industry lingo, downgaged flights to Allentown, Pennsylvania and Atlantic City, New Jersey from their Philadelphia hub. You know, upgaging and downgaging, changing the size of the plane on the route, obviously up, bigger plane, down, smaller. I mean, that happens all the time. But what made this change news was that American downgaged from a regional jet to a bus. But I guess it could have been worse. U.S. airline execs have been talking for a while now about the need to reduce, even eliminate service to small regional airports, pinning the blame first on crew shortages and now most recently on fuel costs. Now, like most frequent travelers, I've traveled through a lot of smaller regional airports. I've appreciated the ability to skip maybe the two-hour car rental drive and fly directly into, say, Allentown, Pennsylvania, Charlottesville, Virginia, Appleton, Wisconsin, Sioux City, Iowa, which not a bad place in spite of its airport code, SUX. So I do have a bit of a fondness for these smaller airports. And and to check in what it's like to run a regional airport today, I fired up Zoom for a chat with Joanne Magley, the Director of Air Service, Marketing, and Customer Experience for Daytona Beach International Airport. 
joined back last June on the Travel Commons podcast in episode 176. Actually, we talked with Dr. Janet Bednarik of University of Dayton about the history of airports. So how did Daytona Beach International Airport get started? Oh gosh, we started as a, a naval base. And then from there, it was given to the city. And then somehow it was given back to the county. So Joanne, Daytona Beach International Airport is about an hour from Orlando about an hour and a half from Jacksonville. What types of travelers are choosing Daytona Beach over those two bigger airports? Orlando might be an hour, maybe an hour and 10 minutes, but then you have to add in the time to go from where you're parking back to the terminal and the time it takes to get through the security checkpoints. So really that hour or so drive becomes two plus hours of just trying to get to your gate. So the people that use Daytona Beach International Airport, they love that convenience factor of walking five minutes from the parking spot maybe spending five minutes at the TSA checkpoint. And it's also, a we pride ourselves on really high customer service. So many times when you go through TSA security, you forget that you might have packed an item on your carry-on that is not allowed. Something as simple as a wine opener or your heirloom pocket knife from your grandfather. Right. Well, you can't take these things through the checkpoint. And rightfully so. so. TSA (laughs) will confiscate Well, no, the TSA does not confiscate. You surrender your items to TSA. Mm -hmm. Usually, you don't see your item ever again. But at our airport, our TSA agents will give you an envelope. You can put the item in the envelope, put your address on the envelope, and then TSA will put it into a, a little locker. And then every day, our operations team comes and unloads that locker. And then every morning, we mail it back to the passengers free of charge. It's simple on our part. It really is. It's just uh-huh. mailing an item. And the cost of mailing an item is very small compared to the reward that we get for having happy people come through the terminal. And we can do it because we're smaller. How difficult was it to get the local TSA to agree to that program? Not difficult at all. They're a great partner with us and they are some of the friendliest TSA agents you will ever come across. Well, that's nice to hear because uh, certainly myself, a lot of travelers step up to the TSA kiosk with a, let's call it a mixed set of experiences. Sure, yeah. sure. <laughs> One of the things that that I think we've seen recently is U.S. airlines talking about having to park smaller jets, the regional jets, and having to reduce some even ending service to smaller airports because of pilot shortages. Has Have you seen any of this? Like a lot of smaller regional airports, we used to have dozens of airlines and then deregulation, which consolidated a lot of airlines, and then the great recession. So through the years, we've landed with two main carriers, Delta and American. We are very fortunate that we had not lost any service with our two main carriers. In fact, we gained a few extra routes starting with December of 2020. American Airlines started seasonal service to Philadelphia and Dallas-Fort Worth. So we, we gained some service. But one thing that we are noticing Typically, when they would maybe bring in a larger plane, they haven't done that yet. We've seen some cancellations 
due to maybe crew shortages. Mm -hmm. Again, not a lot, but where we know that it's affecting us is the opportunity to get more new destinations because at this point, it's difficult for the airlines to say, okay, we'll add new service here and here, even though the airlines know that it could be a profitable flight, they don't have the crew They don't necessarily have the pilots to add a new flight. They would have to stop service from somewhere else in order to start up new. And actually starting up new comes with all sorts of new costs as well. Joanne, how do you pitch an airline for new service and a new airline? How do you guys make that pitch? What it takes to at least be high on the consideration First, you have to show that there is a demand for service and the airlines can see where passengers are coming and going from. So that part's kind of easy. But then the part where there is the, the cost for the startup. What we're seeing is a lot of communities are coming together to put in a air service support program. Uh, It can't come from the airport. The airport incentives have to be separate. So the community is coming forth with an air service development program, which is in the form of a minimum revenue guarantee. That minimum revenue guarantee will only kick in if they're not meeting what their expected revenues are supposed to be. So let's say a community um, gathers uh, $2 million from maybe their economic development fund, from businesses and corporations. And it's, it's more of a pledge. It's not they're giving this $2 million and they're just giving it to an airline. It's it's like a pledge. It sounds like the local community is looking to take the risk out of the business case for the new service. That's exactly what it is. It's risk mitigation. The economic impact of a new airline coming in with twice a week daily flights to multiple destinations, yeah, it's a good investment. But that's what the airlines are looking for, especially the new ones. There's a number of Canadian airlines that are just kind of chomping at the bit to get back. So if if everything kind of stays where we're at and uh, the borders stay open, we will see our Canadian visitors coming back. Joanne, I really want to thank you for joining us on the Travel Commons podcast. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Joanne Magley, Director of Air Service Marketing and Customer Experience for Daytona Beach International Airport. A lot better weather in April than what we have in Chicago. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, Joanne. You're welcome, Mark. Thank you. All right, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 186. I hope you all enjoyed the show. I hope you decide to stay subscribed. You can find us and listen to us on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Amazon Music. You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. Check out the show notes on travelcommons.com for a transcript and links, or you can click on the link in the episode description in your podcast app. If you got a couple of minutes, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on one of those sites, or better yet, tell somebody about Travel Commons. Word of mouth, it's really the only way to grow a podcast. 
If you're not yet subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page with links. And then at the bottom of every page, you can find links to the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along text or audio file to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. Or to M. Peacock on Twitter, write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or Instagram, or post them on our website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And hey, until we talk again, mask on, mask off, who knows? (laughs) Travel safe. Thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now.